Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation co-hosted by Lenya Wilson and myself, Alexandra Detalia. Listen to our conversations while we discuss race and womanhood at the hearth level. I think I'm nervous about today's episode. I Yeah, me too. <laughs> did you listen to did you listen to Amanda Seals? Yes, I did listen to yeah. Amanda. Isn't that is that what made you nervous? No, because I really love her delivery and she does it with such good nature that I as a white woman I was not I was like, Yeah, you got it. I agree. I agree. See, I but agree. then you're one of the good ones. You're one of the good ones because I know a lot of white women contacted her afterwards and they were offended. No, I, I, even just when we think about redlining and home ownership and, and this American dream that we sell as, you know, get a home. Once you own a home, you're okay, which is an American value. It isn't necessarily a world value, but it's an American yeah. value. And the fact that banks and politicians and society have redlined to keep people of color, starting with black people, out of those homes, out of home ownership. Yeah. Which is the greatest step towards wealth. And by wealth, I mean not living paycheck to paycheck or having, I mean, Eric and I live paycheck to paycheck, really, because we're in Los Angeles, but we own a house. And so if the worst happened, we sell the house. Like we're not, we have wealth because we have equity in the house. Yeah. And even just that argument alone, you can't say you haven't benefited from white privilege. It just, you can't say it. So while I have lots of, I have lots of qualifiers and buts for lots of things, which can be partly white fragility or partly just trying to move us forward. But I agreed with everything she said, because of course it's true. And even looking at the Ted talk and we have the link in the show notes below, it's death by a thousand cuts when you think about So today we're talking about microaggressions and when you think about it in line of death by a thousand cuts, the speaker of those microaggressions has to pause and say, okay, I don't want to be a part of that. Even though the one statement might just be a paper cut, but realizing and having empathy for the person you're speaking to that they hear a thousand a day, that changes the algorithm for me. In in a sense, I'm going to just read what a definition of a microaggression is for readers who might not know. So this is from a June 11th article in Oprah magazine. A microaggression is a comment or gesture, whether made intentionally or not, that feeds into stereotypes or negative assumptions created around oppressed or marginalized groups of people. They tend to be based on a person's race, ethnicity, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or disability, and to the recipient can feel like an attack. Or I think in the cumulative, like an attack. Yeah. So for me, what's what's the worst one you've ever heard? Can you share? You're pretty for a black girl. 
And I heard that in a professional setting. Here's, here's the thing. I see that as an aggression, not a microaggression. I, 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 I don't, I'm speechless because that is so horrible because how do you even, what did you say in the face of that? Nothing. I, I, well, I was a little taken aback and I said, thank you, <laughs> like an idiot. And so he was a very important figure. And when he said that to me, I, I, I didn't know what to say. So I was like, oh, oh, thank you. And then he walked into the meeting and I didn't go to the meeting. I went back to my office, which was fine, apparently, because again, you know, black woman is really not necessary in the, in the story meeting. And then after, you know, like afterwards, I guess I was upset about it, but I didn't, I, I don't even remember ever saying anything because who am I going to tell? At that time, I think I was the, yes, I was the only black person in the company and there was nobody to tell. There was nothing to say, you know, I mean, what I remember would, it. I will remember it for the rest of my life, but what, what would I you do? do today? What would you do today? Because a lot of that sounds like you were a young woman and partly I was, I was you were without voice because you were young and yeah. a lot of, I, I find, and I did this myself, is women in the workplace, we sell ourselves on being eager yeah. and, and not really standing in our own self worth at all. And so that sort of quiets you. And yeah. so what would you do now if that happened? I would have been like, so black women aren't pretty. Yeah. I, would you have said that to Beyonce or something like that? In Australia, when I lived in Australia, those would, that was the worst time for this. Here in America, I get it occasionally. And like I said, I still get it today. But in Australia, this was an everyday, all day occurrence. And it would come out of people that I would not even expect. There was, a, and I remember once being in a club during my like crazy drugged out dancing days. And I was in a club and I was dancing and they were playing one of these songs and I was singing to myself as I'm dancing. And this guy goes, oh, you can sing louder than that. All black people can sing. And I got angry because now I'm over 30 and I'm like, fuck you, excuse my language. And, and then he got angry with me for being angry. And so then I basically didn't talk to this guy who was a friend of a friend. And every time I would see him in social settings, I would just stay away from me. Don't talk to me. And then one day I was probably off my face on something. I was in a bathroom and my favorite song came on and I'm dancing and singing in the bathroom. So that's how much off my face, you know, I was. And he comes into the bathroom and goes, see, I told you, you could sing. He just sounds like a, some of these that you're telling me, these are just, these feel like macroaggressions or just aggressions <laughs> because I, they're, they're so off. Wrap, I'm sorry. They're just so wrapped. They're wrapped in a compliment. So people think it's okay. It's negging. Yeah. It's negging, you know, like what we would call negging because it happens to women all the time. Oh, you'd be pretty or, you know, like actually I know a lot of them for like, uh, gay people. Oh, you're not gay like that. Oh, you're not really gay and things like that. Like that's the, those are the same types of things or saying, like, remember when we were discussing the OCD, Oh, I'm OCD like that. Like that's, it's negging. It's, you know, it's a micro, a microaggression, but I also think of it as negging. It's a negative compliment. Well, 
I want to unpack the OCD comment a little bit because that's what I find interesting is understanding it's about refocusing society to think about how the audience yes. hears you. And what's interesting as a writing professor, I talk all the time about know your audience because mm-hmm. you can write anything if you really think about who your audience is going to be. And then the rules of the road of organization and tone might change. But in the end, if you let the audience be your guide, you, you can write. It's one of the things I do when I work with writers. So what's interesting is that when we think about my neutral things that are seemingly neutral or a yeah. compliment, but even just seemingly neutral, that if you haven't taken the time to know your audience, there could be an aggression in there. So for instance, OCD is a medical mm-hmm. issue that people suffer from that can be debilitating. And yes. OCD has also become a terminology for being anal retentive and people use it as slang. And yeah. I know I've used it as slang where I've said, oh, I'm just embracing my OCD today. And I am sure I have said that in public. And in thinking about this, holy shit, did I make somebody who suffers from OCD feel trivialized because I'm talking about cleaning my house or organizing my desk or just proofreading? I am so sorry and I feel so bad because I have more vocabulary. Like, I, you know, I could say I'm being really anal retentive today. I don't need to say, I don't have to, it isn't like I don't have to say it. It's yeah. just that I need to be so much more aware of who my potential audience is. And then if I wouldn't say it in front of one audience, why say it at all? Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, is that I teach this in writing all the time. I talk about precision in writing, about writing. I had a writing professor once at USC, Mark Richard who said, write the unimpeachable sentence. And I have stolen that from him and use it all the time because you should write a sentence. It should mean one thing. And the reader should only read that one thing. If it's left up to ambiguity, then the readers might miss the impact. So it's a lost opportunity. It's the same thing with speaking. And yet we are so forgiving because we are informal we use slang, we scoff at precision. And yet I feel like we need a movement to bring precision back because that's so upsetting to me. And, but I think everyone has bias. We have to kind of forgive ourselves. Everyone has bias. See, you understand this and you are making the moves to change this. So you're all, you know, you're already on the right path. I think those people who have the bias don't know they have the bias and then continuously make these kinds of comments are the ones that are wrong. Well, so that dude who kept, you know, pushing at me about black, all black people can sing has the bias and refuses to understand what he did. I never spoke to that guy who said I'm pretty for a black girl. So who knows what he feels, but you know what I mean? Like at some point, you just need to say something. So if, if you're the person that's 
being the target of the microaggression, the receiver, if you don't say something, then you don't give that person the opportunity to grow. And so uh, lately, you know, when somebody says, oh, you know, you're so articulate, I'm like, well, why would you say that? Everyone's articulate. Everyone who goes to school is articulate. Well, Uh, I'm going to fight with you on that. That is not true. But (laughs) I just feel like you wouldn't say that. No, you wouldn't say that to um, a white person. You just wouldn't because everybody assumes that white people are educated, but everybody assumes that black people are not. Right. Well, the idea is right. Inquiring further, like what made you say that about me in particular? Yes. And not the person standing next to me. Exactly. Or, you know, I had in Australia, somebody told me that I'm the whitest black person they ever knew. That that one was the worst. And I was like that. Why would you say that? And I mean, at that time I said, why would you say that? They're like, because, you know, the way you dress, um, you know, you're just not black like those other people. And I'm like, that's another one. You know, so you're just (laughs) piling it on, piling it on. (laughs) They just assume it's just this assumption. And I I think a, a lot of it is, is because white is the default, right? White is the default for everything. And if white is the default, then obviously if I behave in what they think a white person behaves, then I'm obviously not black. Yeah, I think that's completely true. I, and that's why white is colorless yes. in a sense, the way we've constructed this society and everybody else has color, which is what's interesting, which is why I've gotten a lot more comfortable saying I'm a white person because just saying I'm a person and then identifying somebody else by their ethnicity or their color is absolutely maintaining that Eurocentric, white, supremacist, default society, whatever you want to call it. And until we've reached the next step, which I would like to help get us to, where we can have an American culture and not say a white culture and a black culture and this, and we just have a varied culture, whatever we define that as. I think it's important that we sort of take away the default. And and I think that's important to do. But in thinking about microcosms, we have obvious ones that have been all over social media. Mm -hmm. And you even talked about them. All Lives Matter. Oh my God. You're so white sounding. Yep. Where are you from? I mean, really, where are you from? Australia, again, I heard that even from my mother-in-law. Where are you from? No, 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 but where are you really from? And I had to say, I wouldn't know that because my people were stolen from their land and brought here against their will. That's what I told my mother-in-law. It's... Well, I also think it goes to why so many people talk about, so many Americans talk about Africa as if it's a country and not a continent (laughs) of five countries. Exactly. Because everybody's like, well, you know, you're from Africa. And I'm like, yes, and I'm from Europe. Well, no, you're Italian. I'm like, do you understand why we call African-Americans African-Americans? Because they don't, we have destroyed their ancestry and, and they have generally DNA tests are helping. I know, 
but yeah. generally no concept of, of where from that continent they're from um, and where their ancestors came from. Or maybe they were taken to West Indies for, you know, 50 years as slaves there first. Like nobody, nobody thinks about that. And it only contributes to the ignorance of our current population. There's this whole thing about the map, how the map of the world is not, when you look at a a map, the proportions are wrong. The Peter's map. Yes. It is actually, and everybody can look it up. I used to have a, a big Peter's map atlas in my office and it would freak the law students out because it is showing by actual land mass what the proportions yes. of the world are and right. africa it's, it's, it's is the huge. gale peters map the gale peters map so i we urge everybody to go and look at it we'll put a link in the show notes but it goes to show you how warped we are how like yeah. euro american centric we are from the first day we look at an atlas on a school wall yep on it's but see this goes to teaching our history i mean it's this this is like a greater discussion this can actually become a greater discussion about how we teach our history also causes these microaggressions right because we kind of like want to whitewash the the whole history of america and slavery and when you do that you again the default becomes white and so then it's it's really hard for people to not see, you know, for their bias to increase is more what I want to say. Their bias to, to just become larger because they don't know any better because this is what they were taught. John Oliver, if you watched this weekend, did you, I don't know if you watch I him. I um, do, but I didn't. This weekend did a whole thing on the whitewashing of history. And it was, it was fascinating, fascinating. So there was a couple of things. I posted one on Facebook, a little video of the redlining and how this white woman was talking to camera about how she didn't want, she bought into her neighborhood because she knew that black people weren't going to be living there. And that, you know, if black people came in, it would decrease her property value, you know, so she didn't want them there. And then there was another video that another piece of that segment where there was this gentleman where they started talking about the the season of the Watchmen, where a lot of people, a lot of people did not know about the Tulsa riots and didn't know this part of our history and were shocked when they watched Watchmen and how there was a gentleman who grew up in Tulsa, went to school on that street and still did not even know until he went to college and somebody pointed like they discussed it uh, amongst an African-American history class, what happened? And he was like, wait a minute. No, I'm from Tulsa. And they were, they had to explain to him what happened, the history of his own town. Yeah. And he was, you know, I, I, he, he was quite shocked, but it's just like, it, it, if we don't, if we don't start to teach, if we don't start to forgive ourselves having this history first and so that we can feel comfortable enough to discuss it. I feel like a lot of white people have white guilt about it. And so they can't embrace it. And because they can't embrace it and because they see it as such a horrible thing, those are those people who actually feel that way. But then there's those people who couldn't give a shit. But if we don't embrace it 
and forgive ourselves and start to teach it to everyone and understand it, we really won't move past the bias. We won't. I agree with you. The fact that history is even taught as a permanent idea yeah rather than as a as a story yes written by the victors with all the victors biases in place yeah but how is it a long time to unlearn that like to understand that history is sort of not a fixed thing and the idea is that all they are are tales from the victors. But let's, let's talk about that for a second, because if it's tales from the victors, why are we still talking about the Confederacy? They lost. So this is a, this is something that I don't understand about American history. It's, it's supposed to be the tales of the victors, but the Confederacy is still a huge part of American history. It makes no sense to me. I mean, a lot of things about America make no sense to me. I get that. Right. Because there's nothing really here. You know, other than my family, there's nothing really here that makes this country great. And I know that's probably going to upset a lot of our listeners. But when you live outside of the country and you 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 live anywhere outside of the country, you will see that America does not have everything. And I mean, Australia didn't have everything. I was really unhappy there. And Europe doesn't have everything. I wasn't unhappy there, but you could tell, like, there was a lot of racism. I understand. We're in a hard place in our history. And I do think there are people trying to make change, but we're a very big country and with a complex legal history. Can you get an, could you get an Italian passport? No, I've I've already tried. I to get an Italian passport if I'm current on the idea is that my mother would have had to have been born before my grandparents naturalized. And that's not true. So my grandfather became a citizen before he had my mother. So what a shame. Yeah. I'm just hoping that that changes on Italy's side and I can get a European passport at some point. It, it, yeah. It, Cause you know, the American passport right now is pretty worthless. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we have an FBI file on both of us. You can't travel anywhere. You can't travel anywhere. No, of course that's true. When I travel, I rarely, I have been asked the most bizarre questions when I'm, you know, on a farm in the middle of nowhere, usually with other volunteers from Europe or Australia. Mm -hmm. And what I find fascinating is people will say, oh, you know, is that, does everybody have a gun there? And I'm like, (laughs) no. (laughs) And there is this sense of us being a hyper violent society, which we are. And there have been times where I sometimes to avoid the conflict, I really do just say I'm from Canada and I hide my passport Yeah, because having the conversation is just exhausting to me. And I'm trying to travel to find peace and restore. Mm -hmm. And it's an exhausting experience to be like, how could you have that president? Or even if they think the president is great or but generally speaking, it is it is a hard 
even now with friends that I have that live in Europe, they've been texting me or emailing or just through social media and asking like, you know, are there field hospitals everywhere? I heard the army is in Los Angeles. And I was like, that's not all true, but I see the perception of why that might be true. And it does make it sad. I do think that we have this perception. I certainly grew up with the perception that the United States had everything worked out and we were in this one great nation and certainly age, reality, reading and education has changed that to make me understand that it's not that everything is necessarily really bad in this country. It's just that to hold ourselves up above everybody else is ludicrous, ludicrous. Um, And that we can indeed learn from other places. And and that's, but let's get back to microaggressions for a minute. Yes. Yes. Let's do (laughs) it. I find that the word microaggression makes people uncomfortable because aggression, there's something about the word aggression that sort of implies intent. And I'm not saying it's necessarily true if you go look it up in a dictionary, but I think that's how people feel. And since these aren't necessarily intentional, if I were the wordsmith of the world, I would say these are incidental aggressions. And and they have to be stopped. And you have to sort of examine again from the listener's perspective. And so I want to sort of examine the less obvious ones because okay. that's where white progressive women might mm-hmm. be I, I, nervous, defensive, yeah. whatever you want to call it, but or feeling edited or feeling censured. White progressive women are the worst. I know everybody keeps things. saying that. So in order to help white progressive women not be the worst, <laughs> I think we need to sort of have a conversation about the less obvious ones. And I'm going to start with you're an inspiration. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate that one too. Okay, so let's let's actually unpack that because... I think a person might say, but that's, that's a pure compliment and I'm trying to connect with you and I'm telling you, I admire you. So how can that be a microaggression? So well, let me think, well, what, what about me inspires you? What is it that I did that inspires you? And then they then have to, then it's on them to explain to that, to me, you know? So, and then could it become a non-microaggression? So let's say I say you're an inspiration. Of course, it's valid. If they, if they know me really well and, or, or, or if, let's say it's powerlifting where I meet someone and they, they're like, know that I'm a powerlifter and they're like, oh my God, I saw your, oh, they don't say that. They just say you're an inspiration without any context. So what would you say to that? I would say, well, what about me? It makes me an inspiration. What inspired you? I don't want to necessarily be mean about it because like you said, it could be a genuine compliment, but it it could also be one of these things where they see me as a black woman in the place where I am and think that just because I'm black, I've lifted myself out and I'm some amazing person when, you know, there are lots of black women like me 
probably if it's like I said, if it's something to do with powerlifting and they saw a video on Instagram and they and, and, but without having any context, just say to me, Oh, you're an inspiration. And then after I make the comment, well, what about me inspires you? And they say, Oh, I saw your Instagram video that you, you know, squatted 200 pounds. Then it's a compliment. Then it's thank you. You know, I appreciate that. But it has to have some kind of context because otherwise you're just like generalizing that black women don't reach a certain, whatever their level that they think is inspiring. Do you know what I mean? No, I, I completely understand. What about, what about, I love your hair. I don't really think of that one as a microaggression. What I think is a microaggression is if they then touch my hair or if they say, Oh, your hair is so fluffy or something like, well, okay, you know, something so, like that. So, what if they said your hair is so fluffy? Although, I, I would probably roll my fluffy. eyes. <laughs> I would roll my eyes, cancel them, and walk away without even saying anything. Okay. So, why? Why? What's the difference? Like, explain the difference. Like, why is your hair is so fluffy? I love it. Versus, I love your hair. What makes one a microaggression to you? And what makes the other okay? I can't understand. I don't actually know why fluffy make, um, makes me feel upset, but it does. And I've tried. I thought about it leading up to this conversation, but I, it's just something I'm, I, I, I'm like, what do you mean my hair is fluffy? You don't, wouldn't, if I said that to a white woman, your hair is fluffy, they would not like that because. No, they might be really happy. Like, if they have thin hair, they might be really happy that you said that. Thin hair. Most women wouldn't find that one. I don't, I think that's a, a general, I think most women would not find fluffy hair as something that's a compliment. I don't mind if you say you love my hair because I actually have really cute curly hair. But if you touch my hair, I'm going to cut you. <laughs> so, no, no, I get that. Well, so what if you, what if they said, I love your kinky curls? Okay. <laughs> I well, don't know how I'd react to that. What I'm trying to do one. is sort of like, you know, obviously like part of this is that we need to for me, we need to understand the gray area we're living in. And it's a gray yeah. area and every person's a little bit different and when I think about my fears, which we talked about in an earlier episode, one of my fears is being fired for something that I meant completely as a way to connect, a way to be authentic, a way to be my true self and connect with another person's self. And while, yes, I, I do think I pause before I say things, although I know I'm not perfect and I make mistakes and I would apologize in a second, the thing that what I'm trying to find is how does a person who wants to give you a compliment or wants to say like, wow, like you're beautiful. Can a white person ever tell a black woman she's beautiful without it feeling does it all the time? Well, not your husband, but what if a stranger says it to you? Like, wow, you're beautiful. Wow. You're beautiful is fine. But wow, you're beautiful because you're black is not. And so saying that my hair, saying my kinky curls is then also going back to singling out a, a piece of black culture, right? Or a piece of being black. So right. if you're not singling me, the, the, whatever it is that you find attractive about me, 
having anything to do with me being black and everything to do with me being a person is better. I get that. What if you say, because I know I've said this, like I love curls and I have wavy hair. I wish I had really curly hair. And so I have to say, I say to a lot of women, wow, I love that those curls. I wish you wouldn't iron them straight because it's so trendy to iron out your hair. That's fine. Though the, that trend is actually uh, reversing leaving. itself. Yeah. Thank goodness. Um, it's, it's interesting, just going off topic for a quick second, in the Black community, the amount of uh, sales for hair relaxers has gone down so much. The natural hair movement is exploding around the world, not just America. That's fantastic. What about what is your accent? Now, this isn't probably going to affect the average Black American, but in expanding this idea to somebody who might look like somebody who's Asian, somebody who's a Latino or Latina or Latinx, like... I don't know. That's because, see, that could be anybody. You're not singling out their race. You're singling out their culture. And and, and even not, you're inquiring. You're being inquisitive. It's not necessarily a microaggression. I think if you go, oh, where's that accent from? Because I mean, even in Australia, all the Australians have, depending on where they're from, have different accents. Yeah. But I, I actually think it is a microaggression and maybe it depends on where and how it's delivered. Or again, coming down to context in the classroom, I think that it, even though it's coming from a place of curiosity, it can have the effect of making someone feel other. Yeah. And you want to avoid promoting a feeling of otherism. And because, so it's complicated. I mean, I'm, it's a, it's a minefield in the sense that being curious and wanting to connect, especially since I'm a traveler. And I, so I always want to know, like, you know, that's amazing. Where are you from? Have I been there? Do I want to go? Like, what is this like? But, you know, if I say that to somebody who says I'm from here, <laughs> like it's completely become an insult of that has happened prejudice bias attached to it. So pause, don't ask the question unless the context makes it obvious that it's not going to be felt as an aggression. Because if that person gets asked, where are you from or what's that accent 15 times a day? Yeah. It's basically reminding that person that he or she or they is other. And maybe it's how you frame it. Wow. I really love the way you pronounce that word. Where are you from? What, what, what's your accent or something like that? I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, because when I first started living in Australia and I came back here, I would get off. I got asked often, where am I from? And I'm like, I was born in America. No, I know. But it's funny because your accent is part New Yorker. And then you have this Australian lilt that has faded actually in the last couple of years a little. Thank Um, goodness. No, I loved it. You sounded like you were a magical being because you just came from you had this accent that was singularly Lenya. No, I loved it. You're like, I am from land of Lenya. That is where I'm from. <laughs> I, I, I'm a little jealous. 
I've worked very hard to get rid of my East Coast accent, but I get tired and New Jersey slips out like you would not believe. I say water. <laughs> yeah, I say coffee. Ugh. I actually think for me, the line that I've drawn is that if I'm completely equal with the other person, I will feel safer in being curious. If I am in any kind of authority position at all, I will not ask the question unless it's relevant to the work being done. I never ask a student where the accent's from unless, again, we're in the office, we're talking about travel, and it comes up naturally where it isn't a question, where it's clear it's not about me establishing otherism. If what if you Let's, can't pronounce their last name and you I, ask them to pronounce their last name for you and then they and, and then what what would you do then cuz like that's, I, that I I am be. yeah so I am authentically and so far in I'm sure I have I'm sure I have fucked up I've been teaching 22 years now so I apologize to any former student where I have been a, a fuck up but Generally speaking, I'm really open. I have horrible pronunciation as it is. I have a very poor ear to mouth connection. My mother mispronounced words all the time. I mispronounce words. I I laugh at myself. I will ask students what their last name is, but usually I go by people's first names, but I have to say first names can be complicated too. Often I'll say, I'm going to fuck that up three or four times. Please correct me. And I'll say, and I'm going to be really embarrassed about it, but I want you to call me on it because I have horrible pronunciation. So just by being really authentic, I really think I established that this is on me. This isn't on your name. And it's my problem to work out and I'm going to do my best. So I have many people in my life with the name Ali, A-L-I, except that many people pronounce it Ali. And so some of my friends, and all male, some of my friends say, oh no, it's Ali. And then some say it's Ali. Well, I have to say with students now, I always say, what is the, what do you want to be called? And, And often a student will say, I don't really care. You know, my parents call me one thing, my friends call me another. I said, but what do you want me to call you? And, and then I'm going to proceed to fuck it up because <laughs> now we've conflated the two pronunciations. I've had a whole conversation about it. And then a minute later, I have forgotten which the poor student has said. So then I was like, I, can I just call you you all semester? And I make a joke, but I usually write it down with a phonetic pronunciation, with, you know, my phonetic, my version of phonetics down like a little shorthand. And I'll, and I'll use that a, as a key. And then I really do just ask, like, please call me out. It's really important because the truth is my students mispronounce my last name all the time. And I, I do call them out on it similarly. And that has nothing to do with bias. It just has to do with pronounce my name correctly. So I find that often if you take it on yourself, you avoid a lot of conflict because I, I, I'm very clear. Like I do subscribe to a very old fashioned, I'm God of my own classroom. Like I'm the boss. But I'm also very clear, like if I screw up, you are to call me on it. And, and 
so far, I think students are okay with that. And I just try to draw real lines. Like, so for for instance, I would never comment on somebody's accent, except that I'm a moot court coach. And so if I can't, if somebody who was a moot court student with an accent and if I was having trouble understanding or following their points, it isn't that I would talk about their accent. I would really talk about your points aren't landing. Mm -hmm. And then we would talk about how to go about it. It really wouldn't involve the accent at all. I've had students who have very beautiful foreign sounding because they're not foreign. They are American, but you know, very elegant names. And they, when they pronounce them as they should, they pronounce it in the original language in the accent or even with the accent. And then everything else is, is very, let's, is, is slower. And so what I often say, isn't that you should have your name be anglicized or English because that would be offensive. And I don't even believe that. Like you say your name, how you want to be, how you want it repeated back to you. I think that's yeah. really important. But as far as cadence, I will sometimes say, you just spoke your name, you know, which is, you know, four syllables in a nanosecond. And then the next four syllables took you three seconds to say, you have to even that out because you want the cadence to land. It has nothing to do with accent, name, anything. It just has to do with, you want all of it to land, including your name. And so for me too, like if I pronounced my name very quickly, like Alexandra D'Italia, people are going to screw that up. I get called Alexandria. I D'Italia with the apostrophe, you know, people are D-Italia. I get all sorts of weird things. But if I say it a little bit slower, it might actually, the pronunciation might actually land Mm -hmm. and it gets repeated in the correct way, one could hope. But again, that would still just be a suggestion if the student didn't take it. Hey, you know what I mean? It's your, you do you. Um, I'm just trying to help in that sense. But I have to say, like, when we talk about, you know, we're talking about cancel culture in a previous episode, but with microaggressions, do you think that people should be fired for a microaggression? No, but it is something that if I say to you that, that's a microaggression. Please do not say something like that. And it continues. It is something that you should go to HR for. And and then there should be some kind of workshop around cultural sensitivity that can happen. I mean, I don't think someone should be fired unless they're being blatantly racist. Right. Well, I think. And then even then there should be, you know, this cultural sensitivity training first before the, you know, because just because you said something blatantly racist, like I said, everybody's racist. It doesn't mean that they can't learn from it. So I feel like before we fire someone, we should try to teach them. I, I was, I've been thinking a lot about this and thinking actually that not that I'm looking to make white people feel more comfortable, I, but what I'm about to say is probably going to sound like that. So, I, but I don't, I, I'm really just thinking about cultural sensitivity training are usually done at either retreats, which are special moments, or they're done just like sexual harassment training where you get some video and then you you watch it 
most of it's very obvious. And so, and then you sign that you saw it. And I know this would cost everybody more money. Like I know this costs companies more money, but I think that it gets referred outside of HR to somebody who specializes in, and again, it's not training because I think it needs to be personal in the sense that, and I hate to say it sort of sounds like therapy, but in the sense of someone who can really talk through biases, prejudice, workplace, and then I think that there needs to be some sort of reconciliation with the person who's been offended. And that kind of, I know it takes a lot of time, but if we're going to yeah. change the world one person at a time, I know that sounds so hokey, but in that I, sense, it feels like that would be much more individualized. I mean, so in the sense with what I love, what millennials are doing really in with all of the entrepreneurship out there is they're saying like coaching is individualized. Training is individualized. Mm. Learning is individualized. And so similarly, like unlearning your biases and really digging deep and spending a moment Mm. sort of talking with a person one-on-one because when we read when I read white fragility by Robin D'Angelo and she starts sort of talking about her workshops. And she talks about how the group of white people would feel like they didn't belong there, or they would be angry, or they would be defensive. And I was like, it's also group settings. Like that's a group dynamic in play. And so one-on-one, people are much more likely to let their defenses down and and educate as because biases can be tremendously personal. And so if we're really looking to make change rather than just sort of this blanket, don't say this, don't say that. Because when we think about microaggressions based on gender, which happen all, all the, the time, time as well, <laughs> I, I don't think giving men a list of things not to say is going to make the world a better place, even if they don't say it. But also men... men- are starting to do more work around that individually anyway. Some are, maybe we aren't encountering those men all the time, but I do know that some are. I think that it's the problem because this is where I would laugh and say, as a woman, you know who the worst are? White progressive men. Like, so, (laughs) I mean, I'm not talking about Shane. I'm not talking about Eric. I'm not talking about any of my close guy friends, but to say like in the workplace I get thanked for my enthusiasm all the time and (laughs) it makes me want to stab people in the eye and this is why I think it's really important that everybody take a moment and not like share with someone who's black hey I get microaggressions too because that's not having any empathy at all but when you're understanding what kind of microaggressions you might say by by accident or incidental to to pause and pay more attention is to think about how you, what death by a thousand cuts you've suffered from. Because the truth is that being thanked for my enthusiasm and my love of my students by men has so affected me at work that I, I actually am a little triggered mm-hmm. with anxiety <laughs> by those every time I hear that. So in a different setting, I had somebody in a writing group, a male, 
say, oh, you're always so enthusiastic for group. It's so, it's so great. And I have to say, it's, I know this person didn't mean anything, but it totally cut me to the core because it made me feel as if I have no value other than my female enthusiasm. And my self-esteem is stronger than that. I'm, I'm really okay, but it's just yet another thing. And now there's like a little barrier to entry. Like there's just mm-hmm. that slight bit of dread. <laughs> and that's sort of what I feel like, you know, how a person of color, uh, a black person has to sort of feel when they're under white gaze is that yeah. just that tad bit of it's it's subtle because I, I dread is actually even too strong a word in a sense that it isn't even like I feel it. It's just resistance. It's that little resistance of, OK, steal yourself for a compliment that's going to be meaningless and mm. and be ready to have to dig deep for your own self-confidence. And that's. That's tough. It gets really tough. I wrote I wrote to somebody uh, about a similar comment. It wasn't the enthusiasm come, but it was another, it was a compliment. What did you call it? A neg? A neg. Yes. Negging. So it was a neg. And I, I called the person on it and I, I got a beautiful apology and I know this person didn't mean anything hurtful. And what I liked about what happened is that, and I have to say is that I'd handled it directly I didn't involve any other people because mm-hmm. it's a person to person interaction and I wanted it's very important for me to make sure that I always remember everybody's human and mm-hmm. everybody is dealing with so much stress in the world and so things come out of one's mouth that they aren't being precise with And then you can have, you can say this really, again, speaking from I, right, you know, this really hurt my feelings and here's why. And the apology was authentic, real, and I don't think about it. And so I think it's important, I mean, sort of in in closing up, like I, what advice would you give? See, I think it's a little harder it's a little harder uh, for me as a black person because it happens so frequently. I just don't know. You would be exhausted just calling out everybody. Everybody. On. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I like just when we decided that we were going to definitely do this topic, I don't even know why I became like, Oh, I, I mean, I wanted to do it with you, but I just, it just kind of like, I got this like anger and I wrote these notes about like, well, why is why the default? Why is it that um, black people always have to be the one to educate people? Why is it that I have to say to you that you're a dick for saying that to me? Like yeah. I, it, and then I realized I need to take a step back, <laughs> understand that everyone has, they, they grow up with these biases and, and prejudices and, and that it is kind of up to me to tell someone when they make me feel bad because they can't read my mind. So, but it is exhausting. It's exhausting. So I don't know. I don't, I just feel like people in right now in this very moment in time, there's an awakening as you, as we often, as you and I have been saying, there's this awakening And people need to use this moment because there are so many resources out there. And so I feel 
all the time that it is not incumbent upon me to educate people on these things because the resources are out there. You can go scrolling on your Instagram. I mean, that's how I get all my news. Thank you, Blavity. <laughs> um, you can go scrolling on Instagram and there's like, so you want to talk about it, check your privilege, change. There's so many, you know, resources out there for people. So why can't, why can't progressive white people use these resources? And not only use these resources, because I, I do know that the majority of Rachel Cargill's following are progressive white women who say the most horrific things to her in their in her comments and every sunday she has to post she calls it the the you know the the, the sunday learning session and right. she posts the comments and then she breaks it down as to why they're racist and you know and the tone policing and the and the otherisms and everything why is it that white progressives can't learn from black people in a way that, you know, that doesn't require that kind of but, but, but that they do all the time. I just don't understand that. So I feel like a lot of this isn't on me. I, a and lot I, of this isn't on me. A lot of this has to be on the other person. Do you want to just have a sign that like sort of that you raise? Like when um, somebody says microaggression to you, you just have a sign and say that was a microaggression and walk away. <laughs> just like <laughs> don't even have a conversation at all. No, I hear you. And you know, I try to sort of think, and I certainly don't, I don't speak for all women, but in, in, or all white women or all white progressive women, but trying to sort of think about an answer to your musing as to why, why this happens. And I think the really scary thing is that I think you're speaking to a population who also doesn't feel seen. And being in the middle, we're not the lowest on the rung. We're not the highest on the rung. The middle is a hard place to navigate. And I'm hoping with this awakening that the people in the middle who still have prejudice, all this stuff, like because of gender or for some other reason, can start to learn empathy rather than, oh, but I suffer too. Yes. And I, I hope, because I think if you come from a place of empathy, because for me, and this show is about women. So when I think about it, the empathy that I have towards like what you have to go through, and we've talked about this because as women, you and I have both been told you're aggressive. We've both been called (laughs) loud. I get called harsh all the time. And a lot of that is because I'm from the East Coast and I tend to be blunt. Well, I get a lot of people have trouble with that, especially from a woman. Yeah. And I enthusiastic. And now the ageism is starting to get a little bit weird. Like, you know, you're my mom's age, but you look good or something. And I was like, well, you're poor mom, but. Damn, like, so I look good for an old lady is what you're saying to me. That stuff, okay. I'm sure I did that a lot when I was in my 20s. So it's all forgivable. But to sort of think about that and to say, oh my God, Lenya goes through all that stuff as a woman 
And she has to go through even more because she's black and even more because she's a black woman, because that is an identity all of all of itself. Yeah. That coming from that place, I understand that you don't want this to be on you. It's not your friggin' job. It's not that you should just hold up a sign and say done. Like this is where, you know, we just talked about cancel culture in a couple of episodes ago. And what now I understand, like, no, I get you want to cancel that person because yeah. it's enough already. And but, I mean, but when I don't want to cancel them in, in like them getting fired, I just don't want right. to, I don't want to engage with them anymore. I don't want to hear their voice. I, I, absolutely. So this, this comes into the terms. I want to say this whole thing about, remember when we, we were discussing Amanda Seals? small doses. And she says that there are white women and then there are white women who happen to be white. Yes. So you are just a white woman who happens to be white. Right. Right. Okay. I'll take that. Right. And so you are woke for a better, for lack of a better term. And I think you're beyond that term that we talk about progressive white women, right? You, you have the empathy, you understand where I'm going through. And I feel like if you ever did say something to me that I found as a, a, a microaggression, I know that you aren't saying it to me in that way because I know you have the empathy from me. Do you understand? Sure. I've earned the benefit of the doubt. Yes. And I also hope that you could also question or ask me and our friendship would be fine because I would right. be self-aware enough to evaluate the comment apologize, learn from it and move on. I mean, that's. Um, so I want more white women to get to where you are. That's where I would like to close this. I want white women to see you, Alex, and to see how you interact with me and inter interact with other people and find a way to bridge to where you are right now today. Well, we're going to end there because my self-worth is very high. So thank you, everybody. And thank you, Lenya. <laughs> but I'm serious. That feels good. I know, but I'm no, very I serious. I am very serious. If they could just hear the way you speak about this, you know, even if it's just a slight, even if they move a third in that direction, things would be so different. So different. Well, it's compassion. All it always comes down to is compassion. Is it? I think so. I think it's empathy. I mean, empathy, yeah, like empathy. I feel. Because we're all women. Listen next week when Lenya and I discuss navigating the angst and depression that seems to be going along with these uncertain times. And please find us at womenbridgingthegap.com. We want to hear from you.